Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I am Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It's cold outside. Baby, it's cold outside. Uh, okay, I wasn't going for the song. I'm oh, yeah, I thought like, we were about to do no, it. No, do that it. We're not, we're not no, doing no, that. No, do it. But, that's but, probably for the best. I, I think I'll, that song is really kind of out of step with the times. Yeah, well, lots of Christmas songs are out of step with the times. But oh, oh, here, I said, are you going to start a war on Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> yes, as the as the Jewish member of this podcasting duo, you're going to force I'm, me to defend Christmas. I'm, no, I'm going to suggest that you know there's a hegemony to it that I think is is a bit overstated. I think the hegemony uh, was broken up some time back. Um, although not according to the president, the president says you know we're, we can say our phrase again. Merry Christmas. There's a there's a lot according to the president. There's a lot according to the president. So Bobby, here we are, a special holiday edition of the National Club Podcast, episode fifty one. Happy holidays, everybody! Whatever you're celebrating, we're help, hoping you're with uh, family, maybe even Festivus, airing your grievances. Um, I, I I will say you know family time is wonderful. This is actually we are in the middle of potty training. Our 23-month-old daughter. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified it. Not you and I. No, you me and, and your, my wife. Yes, okay, good. Um, and this is my, <laughs> my one hour and a half out of the house, basically, this week. So you're having for an extra long episode. You know, I, I want to sort of belabor this. You know, maybe we'll have some technical difficulties. Maybe <laughs> the Martians will come in the middle. We'll need a special episode. I mean, I'd, I'd be worried that Karen would be on to me. But let's be honest, she doesn't listen. She doesn't <laughs> You're going to hear about that. I guarantee it. I really am not. I mean, unless people, you know, ping her on Twitter and say, hey, Karen, uh, your husband's talking about you on the podcast again. But don't worry. You only have to listen for the first, like, one minute. That's true. We, we, didn't, we didn't belabor the Karen, the Karen reference in, in this week's episode. What should we belabor? Oh, uh, the usual. So, so we actually <laughs> finally have something to say about ACLU versus Mattis, the John Doe enemy combatant habeas case. More or less as predicted, I'd say. Uh, the, the two items we yeah. said last week that we were watching that we would get a ruling on ACLU Mattis of some kind and uh, that there would be an extension of 702. So we'll talk about both those P- things. P- punchline. I'm not happy about either of those things. You're, you're never happy with these things. I, that, is, that is only mostly not true. Um, Wait a minute. i got to parse that. <laughs> There are some developments in national security law that I find perfectly appropriate. Well, for example, how about a third thing we can talk about today? This use, the first use of the Global Magnitsky Human go. Rights Accountability Act. I am Act. totally cool with it. There we go. Okay, um, so there we got something. Or, or the the new rulings in Travel Ban 3.0, right? That the circuit courts have have still gone ahead and found uh, sufficient problems with the travel ban to enjoin it, setting up. Another Supreme Court trip, I, I suspect, sometime this spring. So are you, are you saying this is a bad week for the Justice Department? It hasn't been a great week for them. I mean, it hasn't been a great week for them. Yeah, they, um, they got a lot of a lot of pushback there. Uh, okay, so those are our sort of four main things. And then we'll project big uh, stories for 2018. Big stories for 2018. And then and our frivolity today, first, we will quickly uh, give you our, um, you heard it here first, Texas Bowl uh, Academy Sports and Outdoors Texas Bowl prediction. The Texas Bowl featuring Mizzou and, well, Texas. What remains, what, the remaining <laughs> players on the Texas Longhorns football Hey, team. have they called you yet, by the way? Uh, you know, I do have, uh, I think, a full four years of eligibility. <laughs> There's another necessary roughness reference there for you. you. Um, um, but actually, our real, our real football today is, in, in the spirit of movies, we're going to talk about that, that greatest of sub-sub-sub-genres, the national security law 
movies. Oh, those are the best. And, you know, some listeners are saying, how are these guys not reviewing The Last Jedi? Well, let me tell you why we're not. Because Steve <laughs> hasn't seen it yet. You're killing me. Did I mention we're in the middle of potty training our daughter? I would think this is a very good reason to go see a movie. Well, so tomorrow night. So, right. so Karen and I have tickets to the IMAX, uh, biggest screen in Texas showing at the, at the Bullock Bob Museum. Bullock. I love it. Tomorrow night at 7.40. We'll be there. So episode 52, listeners, next week we will do a full, and I mean full breakdown of The Last Jedi. You have until then. Okay, that's right. Spoiler alert. Forewarned. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. All right. So speaking of spoiler alert, so Bobby, well, Saturday night, you know, what were you doing? Oh, just, you know, watching Pacer, looking for opinions to drop. I mean, right, 10 p.m. <laughs> on Saturday, December 23rd, right, the Saturday before Christmas. I'm sure that's Christmas when everyone, Eve Eve. everyone's expecting the the big national opinions to drop at 10 o'clock on Saturday night. I, I will not complain about Judge Chutkin getting the opinion out. Apparently, that's when it was ready. <laughs> uh, I'm glad she didn't hold it over further because... It doesn't look like it needed to be held over for further development. It doesn't look like it needed to take as long as it did in the first place. That You do have to wonder. It's a 12-pager. If you take out all the sort of the boilerplate and it's the recapping of the fact pattern. four pages. If that much, there's, there's not much I think you and I it. could have written it in about 45 minutes. Well, I, I think this, we could have been, this could have been delivered from the bench, frankly, yeah. based on based on what was presented last time. All right, the so second let's remind, round of briefing. For, for our brand new listeners... Welcome. You have no idea what we're talking about. We're so glad to have both of you on board. <laughs> what Judge, is this case about? Okay, so uh, back in September, it, the government acknowledged that it had taken into custody an American citizen, probably a dual citizen, it, it seemed I from think, the I beginning. Think we, don't we now know dual citizen? No, I'm saying what we knew then, ah. right? But the original story was American citizen fighting with the Islamic State in Syria, taken into custody by Syrian Democratic forces, turned over to U.S. forces, and then held as an enemy combatant in military detention under color of the law of war in Iraq. And uh, right away, everyone, at least we, are paying attention and having a having an interesting discussion about whether this would be a detention that could be sustained under the AUMF, whether, whether a U.S. citizen could be detained at all without a clearer statement from Congress. Um, but I think what most, at least I thought, Steve, I thought, well, surely we will very quickly have some litigation over this, and probably they'll try to prosecute this person, shift them into DOJ custody, initiate civilian criminal proceedings. Um, you were more concerned from the outset, obviously, in sensing where this might go, which where indeed it did go. Um, the long and the short of it is DOJ ended up having a hell of a time trying to assemble evidence, and they they appear to be unable to make a case for material support or conspiracy or whatever else, most likely because um, we know from the public record he's not talking, and they don't seem to have any other evidence other than the circumstances into which uh, he came into their custody. And so they've been in this uh, in a bind that I don't think they sought. They weren't trying yeah, to establish. I don't think anyone claims they were seeking out a U.S. citizen to detain, but they've got one nonetheless. And then it got interesting because the ACLU comes along, says, well, we obviously haven't been in touch with the guy. No one knows who he is, and he's in incommunicado detention, barring the uh, periodic access by the Red Cross. Um, but we'd like to stand in for him and file a habeas petition as his next friend. Um, he's a citizen. No one denies that he has a constitutional right to seek uh, judicial review. At of, some point. Yeah, at some point of the legal basis and an evidentiary basis of the grounds for his detention. That's the core of habeas for a citizen. Um, the trick is the government says, well, ACLU, you can't do that. What, what, what's your relationship with the guy? Where's your evidence he wants you to represent him? Well, and isn't that the trick, right? Uh, it's a chicken and the egg problem. They they don't get to talk to him. They don't know. So 
The government moves to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, denying that ACLU has standing to uh, proceed as a next friend. And incredibly, it's taken weeks and weeks to resolve this threshold question, should the court order at least some form of preliminary jurisdictional discovery to find out what the detainee's wishes are? So what happened next? Well, so I mean, right. So let's recall. So the ACLU filed this case on October 5th. Right. And it took the better part of what, seven or eight weeks before Judge Chuck and even had her first hearing. Mm-hmm. Right. Then there was a second hearing on the same basic question. And let's be clear that we're not even close to the point yet of asking whether this U.S. citizen who will call John Doe is lawfully detained. There are some interesting questions there, but those are still far in the offing. Right. This is the threshold question of can the case even go forward? You and I have talked ad nauseum on this podcast about ways that Judge Chutkin could have split the mm-hmm. difference, could have cut the Gordian knot, could have sort of certified limited jurisdictional questions for the government to ask of the detainee. Uh, interrogatories, if you will. Exactly. Um, and what I'm struck by is in the decision that she finally issued Saturday night, which you know coincidentally is exactly 100 days from when Doe was taken into U.S. custody, right? Um, the decision says two things, Bobby, that go beyond what I think was minimally necessary. That's right. <laughs> so get, lay those out. Right. Please. So first she says that the ACLU has a right to unmonitored access, immediate and unmonitored access. Yeah, unmonitored. Um, to John Doe for the purpose of ascertaining his wishes, right? For the purpose of finding out if he wants to be represented and if he wants the ACLU to represent him. And second, until that access is provided, the government is enjoined from transferring Doe to a third-party country. And just to sort of flesh this out, there have been some media reports uh, in the last couple of weeks, I think Katie Bo Williams from The Hill, mm-hmm. and I think there was an NBC report as well, um, that there were negotiations with what we now know to be his other nationality, with the Saudi government, to perhaps repatriate him to Saudi Arabia in exchange for perhaps surrendering his citizenship. Charlie Savage, I think, also had a piece about this. That's right. So I think it's clear that he basically is is from his parents are Saudis. He apparently was born somewhere in the Northwest while they were visiting or in the United States temporarily. Right. It looks very, very, very likely like, he's very much like Hamdi. He is a Saudi citizen, yep. born and raised in but not born in, but raised, raised in, in and Saudi has Arabia. lived his life in and Saudi so, Arabia. And so likely. in that regard, it looks a lot like Hamdi. And, you know, listeners might recall that Yasser Hamdi, one of the two U.S. citizens who we picked up as enemy combatants after 9-11, the ultimate denouement of Hamdi's case was that Hamdi agreed to relinquish his citizenship in exchange for being returned to Saudi Arabia, being released from U.S. custody, basically going home and promising never to do it again. I think there are some questions about whether that's constitutional, whether you can whether you can expatriate someone at the, you know, at the end of a gun. Um, we're basically saying we will only let you out of the military brig if you renounce your citizenship. But leaving that aside, that was the Hamdi solution. Right. J- Judge Chudkin has now said, until the ACLU gets to talk to Doe, there can be no transfer. There can be no agreement. There can be nothing. So I think this greatly increases the chances oh, yeah. that this is going to get uh, not not only taken up on appeal and that you will have an interlocutory appeal, which we'll talk about in a moment. Fed uh, Court's nerd, nerdistry. Nerdistry time. Uh, and she's going to uh, get reversed on that, I yes. think. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm, let, I'm let's really be, surprised Let's, let's be clear. The ACLU did not even seek No, the, the ACLU didn't ask for this. Right. Well, all the ACLU wanted was a um, temper. I think they asked for an emergency hearing. Right, just to sort of develop more facts about whether the government was seeking to right. transfer Doe to Saudi Arabia, it did not specifically seek an injunction. At least in part, I suspect 
because an injunction is immediately appealable. That's right. And so now the government has been enjoined from transferring the guy. And you and I, a week or two ago, had a good discussion about the ins and outs of interlocutory mm -hmm. um, uh, appeals. And what is Although it? Judge Chuckin has made it a lot easier. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, so all that all that nuance we went into, uh, <laughs> thrown out the window. She has simplified it for us. Well, welcome to my scholarly career. Now, is there, is there? And let's 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 nerd out on this. Um, the injunction you can certainly characterize the ban on transfer as an injunction that's immediately appealable. Yep. So that goes up. I actually does think, it carry I, I, with I it think, all the rest, or is that also characterized as an injunction so as well? Technically, no. Right. So technically, the injunction by itself would not allow an, an appellate court to review the non-injunctive parts of the ruling. But let's keep in mind, the first part of the ruling was an order to the government to, to provide immediate right. unmonitored access to the ACLU. Man, that smacks of too. coercive relief of the type that is typically immediately appealable. Yep, I think that's exactly right. And, and uh, that means the next stop on this train will be the D.C. Circuit Station. But but let's but let's talk about that station, because that station is an interesting station. It's, mm. a, it's a very pretty and, and strange and multifaceted station. Are they right? are, are the Israelis renaming it? Uh, they might be. <laughs> um, so, so nice, there you go. There's your like insight. That? Yeah, that, that was good. good. All right, so um, the first thing I actually think would be to seek a stay, right, before actually oh. pursuing a proper appeal to the D.C. Circuit, would be to ask the D.C. Circuit to stay the effect of both of these semi or at least quasi injunctive Now that's holdings. interesting because they kind of cut different ways, don't they? So to stay the stay the immediate access, immediate monitor access part, that sounds like something where you want to preserve the status right. quo. So stay the effect of that. Yep. Um, interestingly, the the other right. part, stay in the, the transfer. Stay, right. Uh, is is opening the door towards going ahead and transferring the guy right. ASAP. And so I would actually think that the government has an easier burden to carry on the first question. Exactly Does so. Does the ACLU get immediate access? And the second question, should we lift the injunction on transfer? They might not. Now, and yet I think they're, the, the reverse will be true on the merits I, I of the I completely agree. But, but so, so Bobby, it's, it's four days later, right? Why do you suppose the government hasn't yet asked for a stay? Christmas? I I, was that? <laughs> Christmas? Um, no, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Actually, I do not think the Yes, President Trump might be playing golf all week, but I think there's the some civil division in the Justice is, Department. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so what's the delay? Um, if I had to guess, I have no idea. I have no inside information. No one tells me anything. By the way, DMs are open. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the guess I have has to do with the composition of the emergency motions panel in the D.C. Circuit this month. Oh, this is good. Lay it uh, on me. So um, at least the last couple of emergency injunctive issues in the D.C. Circuit this month have been resolved by the following panel of three judges. Bobby, if you are the government, as I name these judges, tell me how excited you are. Judith Rogers. Super duper. David Tatel. Extra super duper. Patricia Millett. Fired up. So they so does this likely run out on the thirty first then? So I'm not, and I, then it flips over to some new. Panel? My, I'm more familiar with emergency motions procedure in other circuits. In most circuits, the emergency panel is a month to month thing. Yeah, right, yeah, right. It looks like this is a monthly panel because they've handled three different things in December and probably calendar month. And uh, therefore, why not wait a few more days till Tuesday? Right wait, when you get a new Tuesday, fine band. Um, or at least you, one hit wonder. What's that? Oh yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> voice is scary. Go on. You and your, you're just throwing me off. Me and here. my '80s music. So, so, so it wouldn't shock me if the if the government is deliberately waiting until whenever. I think it's Tuesday, but whenever the motions panel turns over, because frankly, it would be hard to imagine a three-judge DC Circuit panel yeah, yeah. that would be worse for them. So, how many days do they get before they've got to get the? Uh, the that's, I mean, that's up to and, and is the deadline the same for the seeking the stay versus seeking the actual approval to? Because uh, they have to move, right? For yeah, but it's not. I mean, it's it's interlocutory appeal. I'm trying to remember how long it is. 
So twelve ninety two. I would have thought ten days. Is it ten, 10 business days? days? But you've got a holiday thrown in, right? right? So you've Mondays. Got a couple, you've got a couple. You've got a couple you've got holidays. The next Monday. Right. Out. They can easily wait until. I mean, ten days. They would can not, do it. Yeah. Yes. Ten days would not expire before Tuesday, okay. January second. So to be clear, it, we don't actually know if it's ten days. I'm just speculating. Yeah. But ten days would be the, the shortest window. I think and, it's longer. But anyway, those are business days, not counting weekends and holidays. And so we got two of those in the mix plus the weekends. All, all this to say, yeah. I'm not surprised that we have not yet heard from the government. Well, and I would add that, of course, the the, the one thing as as we were saying a moment ago, there. They're obviously not in a rush to comply with the don't transfer part. It's The concern is the immediate access part. But really, uh, for that, they can get the stay by not taking any action. Right. Right. They're just right. doing until, nothing. Until Judge Chutkin actually holds forcing, their feet to the fire. forcing ACLU to go to Judge Chutkin and hold their feet to the fire. And by the time this can go anywhere, you're, you're two next Tuesday anyways. All right. So, Bobby, we've described Judge Chutkin's holding. Now let's actually— Say what it was? Say, no, no. Now let's actually, like, react to it. Okay. Uh, well, look, the uh, I think there's different parts here. The part that says that um, let, let's start with the the closest thing to a merits issue we have, which is the Boumedien question. The government had said, according to Boumedien, and I think there's language to this effect in Hamdi as well, in the plurality opinion, that when it when a person who's a citizen falls into military custody in a situation like this, um, the access to counsel that, for habeas purposes this doesn't attach immediately, and that's right. It it doesn't, and it shouldn't. This raises a question, how long? And you and I spent some of the earlier weeks on this show uh, talking about how we, we may not agree precisely when, but we both agree it's not right away. And Episodes there's some, 36 and through 50 inclusive. Exactly. Um, Passim. So <laughs> it, it's it's all throughout there. Um, and, and the government had argued that whatever the deadline is, it still hasn't arrived because they haven't decided on the long-term disposition. Because the, though he is an enemy combatant, they say, and they're holding him in that custody, um, they're still thinking about, well, maybe we'll transfer him. Maybe we'll still be able to, to gin up the prosecution. Um, and Chutkin, quite correctly, in my view, decided that, that that's not the question. Long-term disposition isn't the question. The question is, have you decided he is detainable as an enemy combatants, and that you're going to, at least for the time being, hold him as such. Now, they decided that a long time ago. It's been three months, and she quite correctly says that's the measure, and wherever the line was, we've long since crossed it. So, I think that part's rock solid. So, oh, so do I. And so the implication of that is that the right to habeas corpus and any right of access to counsel that comes with it presumably has, we've crossed that threshold, right? Yes. She, has, she doesn't have to say when we cross that threshold. Just like, you know, wherever it is, it's behind us. Exactly. And I, and I think that this is actually not a hard call. I, I think that it's pretty clearly the correct answer, obviously. So so then the question becomes, so so what next, right? right. And the question then becomes... So do you get from there to immediate unmonitored access by the ACLU? Yeah. Now, does this mean, Steve, she says at one point, she says the question to be asked is... Uh, John Doe, I'm from the ACLU, do you want me to represent you? Or, she writes, or do you want court-appointed counsel? So there's sort of a Gideon rule here. Is, is this right that you definitely get court-appointed counsel? Not necessarily. I mean, I think, so court-appointed counsel, I think, is not the same thing as government-funded counsel, right? That is to say, I don't think I don't think she's promising that the government's going to pay for him to have a lawyer. Yeah. But the reality is I don't think that she'll, matters. She'll appoint pro bono counsel. I think that's necessary. the idea, right? Yeah. Or, or, the, or someone from PDS, yeah. the D.C. public defender. Right. I mean, I think the her point is that it's whether John Doe wants to be represented is not necessarily the same question as whether he wants the ACLU to represent him. Something right. you and I have talked about before. Right. So, okay, just to be clear, the, the the only real interesting question here is not is he going to have some counsel. He'll have some counsel 
if he wants to pursue a habeas action. Now, it's interesting. The way she writes it, she thinks this has already been decided, right? Because gov- he's asked for a lawyer. Exactly. So this is interesting. We, we do know it's, it's been acknowledged by the government that the FBI sent in a clean team at one point trying to develop the criminal case. Uh, he was read Miranda uh, warnings, and when the right to counsel was mentioned, he invoked his right to counsel. Now, that was in the context of an explicit attempt to question for criminal law enforcement purposes. He, he clearly asked for counsel in that context. The government argued that, well, that's that right to counsel. He hasn't expressed any interest in litigating habeas, to which there are many answers, including, well, he may have no idea. Um, you and I had a discussion how they're really probably awesome ought to be, probably is, a prophylactic obligation to make sure that someone who has habeas rights in this setting actually knows that. Right. Um, a, a sort of a quasi-Miranda rule. She goes past all this. She doesn't analyze it. She just says, hey, he asked for counsel. Why are we talking about this? Right. And nobody so, wants counsel. And, and I guess and I guess that's, you know, that that is a plausible, right, reading of the record. It is. It's not necessarily a correct reading of the record. That's right. It, it, it may be a bit of a formality because it's hard to imagine he would say, like, no, no, I really, as long as you're not prosecuting me. Right. I don't need a lawyer. But this so goes, he, he's but, not going to say that. No, no, no. But this goes back to sort of my biggest – so I have two problems with Judge Tuckin's opinion. Well, I have three problems. One is how bloody long it took. But um, the second problem I have is she jumps over what I think would have been a far less controversial mode of relief, right, which is the limited jurisdictional discovery you and I have discussed in the past, yeah. which would not have required the ACLU's direct and unmonitored access to John Doe, right? Yeah, that right. could have been affected without – literally require on the government to open the door to the ACLU. A little bit of distrust there that she doesn't trust the government to, to present the questions. She doesn't say that. I mean, she doesn't offer, she doesn't offer any, she doesn't say, I could have done this, but here's why I'm doing this more aggressive, mm-hmm. more coercive thing. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the, the much more uh, intrusive mode she has specifically called for, um, sending ACL, ACLU personnel in theater uh, presumably, unless he's brought out. Yeah. But they're going to have to send somebody over there, and uh, they're going to get unmonitored access. Is that appropriate? And, and indeed, is it, it? it's interesting, right? Because it can't be a – isn't an attorney-client privilege matter? I mean, they don't represent him yet, right? Well, so we're – I mean, now we're, that, that's a circle, right? I mean, yeah. and, so I, and so this is, again, why I think we could – this all could have been easier if the first question had been proffered to Doe without the involvement of the ACLU. Yeah. Right. If the do you want to be represented? Do you want the ACLU to represent you? If he says yes to both of those. Then I think it's perfectly reasonable for Judge Chuckin to say, "All right, there is an existing attorney-client relationship. As part of that relationship, the ACLU is entitled to unmonitored yeah. access." What happens here instead is there will be some opportunity for whomever goes over there, presumably, to say whatever they want to the guy because it'll know, be listen, unmonitored. Which is fine. I mean, I you know, you and I might have different levels of comfort or discomfort with that. My point is, it's vulnerable on appeal. Right in a way that the more limited, right. less aggressive holding, first of all, might not even have been appealable, let alone vulnerable on appeal. Exactly, and so so it's created a further layer of litigation that'll that, further delay things. Which is my, as you know, is my biggest single yes. objection yeah. to all of this. And then to the last problem on the sort of blocking the transfer, right? So there's both the procedural awkwardness of giving the ACLU relief it hasn't even sought, and there's the substantive issue of, you know, Munaf, the the 2008 Supreme Court case that, frankly, imposes a very high bar 
to the relief Judge Chutkin has provided here, which is enjoining the transfer of, I mean, on almost those exact facts. That was a U.S. citizen being held in Iraq. There there it was transferred to Iraq. Here presumably it would be transferred to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Right, which, by the way, there's not even been a suggestion that he's being transferred to face, you know, in Munaf's case, facing criminal prosecution. Um, I think either Munaf or the other guy had already been convicted. Munaf, Munaf had been convicted. Omar had not been. Yeah, so so it's actually, it's, it's a much worse case, I think, for the litigant. But fortunately, the judge uh, had used all this time to develop a lengthy explanation as to why this case is distinguishable, right? No. Nothing. No. Munaf's not even, dis- it's not even cited. Not cited. I seem to recall from other contexts <laughs> where people got real wound up when people don't cite controlling or at least seemingly highly relevant Supreme Court precedent. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty glaring, I think, to take this particular step and not even mention something as significant as that case. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> listen, I, 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 I want to be clear. I am not defending the analysis in Judge Chutkin's opinion. Oh, I know you know. I know you're critiquing it um, or I, lack I, thereof. And, and I think that from... From Doe's perspective, this actually might have been the worst possible opinion for Judge Chuckin to have written. Right. Thanks Thanks for the help, Judge. Right, You've because, extended things for months. Well, so first she took too long. Second, she created two separate and immediately appealable issues. Mm-hmm. And third, in the process, made it much more likely that if the government wants to play out the string and wants to stretch things out and wants to take their chances in the D.C. Circuit, they now can do so without anything happening, without That's right. without the access that the ACLU sought being provided, um, you know, maybe with without him being transferred. Right. Maybe that'll stay on hold pending the... But, I, you know. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. So prediction, let's kind of foreshadowing our predictions for 2018. Let's do <laughs> ACLU v. Mattis. I predict it, this will go to the D.C. Circuit. Yes. I think we agree on that on, on all these issues. Yes. Um, I think that the the transfer ban is going to get uh, get overturned. Yep. I think that uh, that'll be kind of interesting if the court thinks that the transfer ban gets overturned. Will it, in the meantime, though, allow some form of ACLU access to go ahead? Because I think that they do. At some point, we do have to allow this guy. Yeah, to no, express no, his view. And, and so the question is, right? Does the DC? I can't imagine that the DC Circuit will fully endorse the government's position that there's nothing Judge Chutkin could have done. No, that's right. Um, I think they're gonna they're gonna be okay with some form of relief, but and so, will so they modify it, it or will they kick it back right. for another and, and brief? And if they modify it, do they modify it in the direction of the Chesney Vladic plan? Right. Yeah, just just pose the questions. <laughs> yeah. um, in we, the inter- is there anything, we, is there anything we, we have literally written them out on the internet. Like they're so, sitting there. Can, is there anything about um, their posture as an interlocutory appellate panel uh, that would prevent them from actually leaping ahead and saying, look, here we normally would remand this for further proceedings, but given the circumstances, we're going to tell you right now, here's what needs to be done. So um, in, an, in any other case, I would actually say yes, um, but habeas is unique. And the reason why habeas is unique is because the relevant provisions of the federal habeas statute don't just give the district judge the power to order the requisite relief. It gives circuit judges the uh-huh. power to do okay, it as well. Okay, good. So circuit panel... You don't have to send it back for fresh rounds of briefing. Right. I, I mean, it's a, it would be entirely within, it would be unusual, but it would be entirely within the proper authority of whatever panel gets this, you know, hot potato on appeal to just deal with it themselves. Right. Now, look, I want to see if you agree with me about this. It, I think it's the case that, let's, let's assume that the questions are posed, and he writes back saying, yes, please, I want to pursue habeas, I'd like ACLU to represent me. That can get in motion. Yeah. And the very next day, the government could say, Good news, we're transferring you back to your homeland, Saudi Arabia. And this isn't defeating habeas. This isn't something that, sorry, now that habeas is attached, the United States has to hold on to you so that then we can figure out whether they should be holding on to you. That That's right. I will just say I... 
we ought to distinguish for those of our listeners who are not the uber federal courts nerds that, that we all want to be deep down in our hearts. Deep down. Um, there's a distinction between prudential mootness and constitutional mootness. And a transfer of a detainee will prudentially moot a habeas petition because the guy is not literally in custody right. anymore. It is not necessarily the case that it constitutionally moots the claim. Um, so long as there are reasonable collateral consequences mm -hmm. flowing from the prior detention, you can argue under a 1963 Supreme Court case called Jones versus Cunningham. That's how I like to do it. That the detainee is still in custody, right, for purposes of the habeas statute solely to litigate whatever issue might affect the could, collateral consequences. Could a uh, agreement to facilitate the transfer to waive one's citizenship? So that's the question. So, yeah. so could one collaterally? Now, that would be awkward. Now, didn't Hamdi try this? Wasn't there some? There wasn't, there there wasn't was no, a subsequent filing. Yeah, okay. um, so I, I don't think so, yeah. right, because... Um, the agreement would it would be it would be odd for a detainee to say I got out of this brig, but I'm litigating so I can go back to the brig, right? Like that would be no, a, right, right. that would no, be an awkward that. posture. It's... But insofar as a detainee could say, like, what if the agreement says because you were an enemy combatant, right? You will no longer be allowed to enter the United States. Right. That's a collateral consequence. Right. And you know, if the basis is some legal determination that a court has the power to review and potentially reverse, not clear to me that, that would be constitutionally moot. Of course, let's be real. Any yeah. judge in their you know right mind is going to say whatever, not my problem, dismissed. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Okay, so that at some point is going to. I think some deal like that's going to go down as soon as they can get past Judge Chutkin's temporary hurdle of Ugh. the no transfer ban. So at some point in the spring, I would say pretty quickly in 2018, yeah. once the panel uh, eliminates <laughs> that obstacle, the government's going to find some way to close this deal with the Saudis. Unless, we'll, unless there's some element to the story that we just well, don't so here's, see. So, right? so here's the thing. I mean, um, you know, I, I – I, I had a long chat. Katie Bo Williams, I think, was the one who broke the Saudi mm -hmm. piece of the story. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and she and I had a long chat about this. I mean, if it's Saudi, and, and you've talked about this on Twitter, if I if I recall, right? If it's with with I think in an exchange with Beck Ingber, right? If it's Saudi Arabia, that makes it that much stranger. Yeah. How come we can't cut a deal because, there? What's because when we're, when we're thinking of countries who we'd have trouble. Right, reaching some kind of agreement with yeah. Saudi Arabia is not one of them. No, no, we've had lots of detainees transferred there. There are these, you know, there have been a lot of changes, and there's a lot of turmoil going on in, in the kingdom right now. Um, and there's been some changes to their so-called rehab program, whatever the latest label for it is. Still, in the context, it's very surprising. I, I would imagine that the stumbling block has been the renunciation of citizenship angle. Probably perhaps. not any kind of inability on the part of the Saudis to say whatever we need them to say. Yeah, perhaps. Although I guess I mean, would the, would that really be the the hill the government would die on here? Like if, if 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 the only thing blocking them from getting this guy off of their you know off of their call sheet. Right yeah. um, is is the citizenship question. Why not save that and fight for another day? No, I, I think that that it's not hard for me to imagine that they were really hoping to have him renounce his citizenship. I, right, but but as between really hoping he was going to do it and forcing potentially bad precedent in the D.C. Circuit on habeas. Yeah, but that that assumes that there's a, a single mind or well, somebody fair. really thinking through this situation right. and balancing all the equities. I think part of what's trouble problematic about this one is be, precisely because it bu bubbles up from below by circumstance. Right, you got lots. Lots of different players, each pursuing their own sort of office institutional yep. uh, equities on these matters. And it's created a bit of a mess on policy. Well, and, if, and if I recall from Charlie's most recent story, it was just like 10 days ago that they had the first deputies meeting on right. this, which 
blows my mind that it took that. So long. let's talk about some here. Let's get a little more um, outside the box on this. So it, we, we haven't on, beat this in the ground on, on this on this theory. The whole case has kind of been below the presidential radar, yep. right? But now you've got a judge. Uh, and, you know, nothing's going to get the president riled up, like a judge telling him this, that, or the other, right? Uh, especially, if I may, a uh, judge of this particular ethnic background and racial background being appointed by President Obama. Well, it, let's remember this. I don't know about that, but that uh, that's, that's probably doesn't help with this particular president. <laughs> but also, uh, this is the same judge, I believe, who's involved in the, uh, the, the abortion, uh, the abortion yep. uh, immigration case. Yep. So so there's there's a way in which the, the worst thing that could happen for this particular detainee or, or just for this issue set in general. It's for the president to attention. <laughs> it's for the president to decide what I care about this. Here's what I want done. Right. Next thing you know, this guy's shown up at Guantanamo. Maybe right. I mean, there's already <laughs> judicial engagement. That that would be that would be. Maybe that's where ACLU yeah. will be told they can have their uh, their unmonitored access. Although that raises a whole separate set of issues. Is it there. really unmonitored? <laughs> uh, unmonitored by DOD or unmonitored by the government? Well, let's just say that uh, it's very telling. You and I have lamented that, uh, with the exception of Katie Bow and a few other people, not that in Spencer and a few others, yep. Charlie, not that much media attention. And I said, I think last week, that the reason why is you ha- you need these precipitating events to hang the story on. Yep. And there were a lot of stories I saw in every paper and news source had some bit of coverage after on the it. after the ruling, right? Which means that sooner or later this gets on Fox and Friends. Yeah. When when this gets on Fox and Friends, that God some judge us. is helping the ACLU. Some get, Obama judge. Once it gets to that level and the president engages, there's no telling where this issue might go. I think it's very telling that we have good reason to think it's not been to that point yet. So what you're saying is it's good that the president doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> that would be awesome if he would. <laughs> that, that would really not be awesome. That would be pretty fabulous. That would be like the time that he quoted uh, Ben Wittes' uh, Lawfare post without actually realizing that the rest of the post that was trashed him. Yeah, that was well, pretty fantastic. Yeah. That definitely helped to boost uh, readership. All right, speaking of things that have largely flown under the radar, so Bobby, something happened. with se- well, well, a bunch of things almost happened with uh, 702 reauthorization, and then something actually did happen. As predicted here, it was uh, a rider was tacked on to uh, some must-pass appropriation type thing. But before that, right, I mean, the House, Right, the House Republicans tried to actually do a full reauthorization, like a clean, standalone, not tacked on reauthorization. Right, no, and no, no joy there. It did not go through. So instead, we have till was it January nineteenth? It got kicked over to January because you know that's that's a long time from now. Well, no, so I, I would have thought you would have been all fired up about this because, as I recall, uh, you were you were wanting more time for debate. You didn't want this. To I do go. want more time for debate. Does, okay. do, do, do you think that we're going to have that debate in the next three weeks? Look, I think we've actually been having the I debate for. The the entire well, I really want to press on this. Like, what is it we're not debating, or what, where is the debate not happening? Short of a, a general floor debate for whatever that would be worth. No, in no, the no. So, in the so House. listen, I, I'm not. This is not a critique of the relevant committees, right? This is a critique of. I mean, if you'll forgive me for sort of beating up on the media a second, right? Where are the editorials? Um, on this issue, right? Where are the sort of um, broader concerns that some of the problems Snowden revealed back in 2013 have gone completely unaddressed, right, in this reform package, for better or for worse, right? Where where the government's basically getting just about everything that's asked for, where we're not going to have any real sort of discussion of eliminating the backdoor search loophole, right, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an interesting measure of whether we're having enough debate. I think it's a fair question in 2017, 2018 to ask, does it really matter 
if the New York Times ran an op-ed, an editorial position piece on it, when when all these fora, including the ones we're involved with, but a lot of the other ones, have certainly been engaged up their eyeballs. I mean, I, there have been endless I, posts I, I, about it. I just feel like you and I are not the relevant measure of, of engagement on this question because if anyone was ever going to be engaged on this question, it was going to be people like us, right? But, Whereas I, I look at, like, yeah. so my parents, I mean, let me, let me pick on my parents for a second, who every once in a while listen to this podcast. So um, be, be careful. Right. So my parents, I mean, I, I think of my parents as sort of, they're not lawyers, right? But they're super engaged. They like, they read, they actually, yeah. you know. Thoughtful citizens. Right. When they were here, I had to go out and find a bloody hard copy of the New York Times every day. Starbucks usually carries that. Uh, yeah. You'd be surprised over the holidays. Yeah. Um, book people. Book people. Uh, um, Austin's fine, fine local bookstore. So anyway, okay. so back to my so so like right, my parents. I I, I take my parents as proxies for super engaged people, and my parents like are you know completely clueless about why this is a big deal and about what the fight actually is. They're vaguely aware that there's some surveillance authority that's probably about to be reauthorized, but the, and now yeah. if they wanted to find it, of course they could go. They could go to lawfare. They could go to just security. My point is that for consumers of information who are not thinking like us. Right. This has not been presented in a way where it looks like a major public issue. I think it could. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I disagree a little bit because I think over the course of the year, there's been a fair amount of this. It's certainly true that it, at like almost every substantive issue, it's hard to get past the noise factory yeah. that is the, yeah. you know, Trump and all things surrounding Trump. True. Um, I'm also just not sure there really is a way for there to be a useful entree into the issue for the average concerned citizen without going to the more detailed, uh, you know, subject matter specific specialty sources. But that, I get, it, you know, I mean, me, media like the nightly news could have in an earlier era played that role. Right. Right. But, I'm not sure how helpful it so, would be to have that kind so of engagement. So let me ask a question. Do you feel the same way about like Carpenter? Right. Because I feel like Carpenter is actually a super accessible to the public Fourth Amendment techno- digital technology case. Right. Where it's like, you know, we all have cell phones. Right. Our right. cell phones work by transmitting signals to our cell phone towers. You know, should the government be able to does the government need a warrant? It's a lot more digestible. Right. Carpenter is a much more accessible issue. As you just put it, you can kind of get to the gravamen to do the same thing with 702 and to get into the nuances of, well, you know, should we should we have a the, what sort, sort of process should be required before you can do a so-called backdoor search? Should we call it a backdoor search? Yep. Um, it could be that you there's a there's a price to admission to really engage. Yeah. on it that, that doesn't fit well with the available sources for reaching the mass public. But then shame on us. Yeah, well, there's a lot to shame on us in, in general yeah. in that space, right? All right. So so, so January 19th, Bobby, I don't think you or I think that we're going to see anything dramatic, right, between now. I mean, Rand Paul might pull out another filibuster, but... Yeah, I'm not, I, look, I think that we're going to get some form. I don't think it'll be a clean renewal. There will be sort of uh, some superficial uh, reforms. It'll superficial be, is the right word. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty much what we what you're going to. And then the question at. is just with how long of a right with with what window? Yeah, no. So so a few people had tweeted at us saying, you know, what what should we be looking for? So I think one one thing to look for, one thing that genuinely I think is in play, a couple of things. Um, first, uh, will there be will the unmasking stuff intrude into 702 <laughs> reform? I think it's an open question whether you know one. One of the prices of getting this thing through will be to to uh, statuify, to codify, to use a more more relevant word, to go. codify some of the existing practices, maybe tighten up a little bit some of the unmasking practices, which actually have nothing to do directly with 702, but that's, that could uh, clinch the political deal. Uh, separately, 
about collection. Um, about collection is where 702 uh, collection is taking place, not based on to or from, but just someone using the targeted word or right. the identity or the selector. And and right now, um, NSA is not doing about collection because it determined that for technical reasons, it wasn't able to, to carry it off in a way that was sufficiently discriminating, um, holding out the possibility that in the future, the technology would change and they would be able to do that. There have been a number of proposals to try to lock that in to, to prevent NSA from ever going back, even if the technology does become more discriminated in the future. I think that's the most significant thing um, that is, aside from the backdoor search stuff, I think the about collection question could go either way in whatever they finally pass. And uh, I think that that's something that really yeah. matters. I, I agree with, I agree that those two things are both significant. I would add two more things that are significant, right? Um, the first is a dead letter, but I want to raise it anyway, which is to ramp up the powers of the special advocate, right, in the FISA court. Um, this is my dead. This is me beating my dead horse. What would you What would you add to the special advocate? Make it a party, not an amicus, right? Which is part of the original proposal back in the the what was it, the Senate version, right, of the USA. Freedom so, what Act. practically would turn on that? So practically, it would mean that you the ability to appeal the ability to appeal, right? So you'd have potentially more ability to take cases to the FISA Court of Review. Um, you'd also be less dependent upon the permission of the presiding FISA judge. So the way that the um, USA Freedom Act is written, a judge can not appoint an amicus if he or she determines that it's mm -hmm. not necessary. Yeah, right? is it? Are you are you speculating? Are you imagining there may have been cases where there probably should have been an amicus? Um, we know at least, we know of at least one. I mean, we actually there's a I, forgive me. I don't remember off the top of my head what it was, but there was an early case under the USA Freedom Act where the relevant FISA judge held, you know, said, I do not believe I need to appoint an amicus to resolve this question. I think it was, um, might have been about the transitional rules, right, and whether, okay. and whether um, 215, the bulk collection was authorized during the, the transitional period, right, or something like that. Um, and the judge said, I don't need an amicus because this question is obvious, Right, and in fact, as a whole bunch of people point out online, there are lots of different arguments that the judge did not consider that an amicus might have helped them. Mm, so we know that at least one published case where a judge went the whole "I'm good." Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And, right, and feel so good. Um, so, so all I'm saying is, I I thought all along that the way to sort of avoid the concerns that folks like Judge Bates, who ended up being the most vocal opponent of this, yeah. raised about the special advocate, was not to make it an amicus, but was to specifically limit the cases they were allowed to participate in. So for example, I would not have thought that you would need a special advocate in any of the Title I classic FISA cases, yeah. where it's just a question of whether the government has probable cause to believe that John Doe, not, not the same John Doe, right. Right, is an agent of a foreign power. I would have limited it to the 215, 702, and other sort of non-individualized cases I think that would have done the same work. Interesting. So I, I have no particular problem with that uh, proposed remedy. And uh, the appellate idea, I mean, facilitating more appeals seems like a, a useful thing as but well. But that's, that's not going anywhere. And then the other yeah. thing I think folks should look for is how long is the reauthorization, right? Because one of the things that actually is useful here is um, we wouldn't be having this conversation at all, right, if this, if this weren't expiring on December 31st. Um, and so the reauthorization at least forces, whether I think it's a sufficient conversation, it at least forces some conversation. And so if the, the shorter the reauthorization period is, the more Congress will have to, the, the sooner Congress will have to have this conversation again. Yeah, it could be a bug or a feature. Well, um, uh, right, but, but it's relevant either way. You know, I'm curious, would you, should the whole thing, I mean, should the original FISA framework also be sunset? 
so that we keep having these conversations? I mean, I'd be comfortable with that. I think there's less of a need for it, right? I mean, so, so you know, folks who have, have listened to me wax on on the podcast or read some of my work, like, I think there is actually a critically important distinction between classic FISA and what I shorthand is post-9-11 FISA, although it actually started in 1998, as you know, mm-hmm. right? That there's just a huge difference between FISA when what we're talking about is individualized warrants and FISA when we're talking about... Um, production orders under Section 215 or certifications under Section 702 because those are such different questions and such different roles for the course to play. I'm actually quite comfortable with classic FISA. Um, it's much more the new stuff that I think raises not just serious civil liberties concerns, Bobby, but odd structural problems about the role the FISA court is playing. Well, I think that as we add in all these encumbrances and, and, and gadgets to try to get the balance between uh, privacy and security just right, we've got to bear in mind that there may be advantages to be had from the security side of the ledger in having renewed engagement. It could turn out that if, right. for example, the newest round of renewals removes the ability to do about collection, maybe three years from now we need to revisit it because there's new technology technology that would enable it to take place more effectively, sure. and you need to restore that. Listen, sun- sunsets help calibration, right? I mean, I right. think that this is part of why you and I are both fans of at least some kind of, you know, terms may vary, but at least some yeah. kind of required periodic revisiting of war powers, right? right? Because the one thing that sunsets guarantee is that Congress will at least have to consider recalibrating the authority. Of course, at least in that context, one of the big advantages is making Congress own the issue so that people can't uh, take the usual posture of saying, well, I'll criticize the stuff I don't like. I'll I'll applaud it when I do like it. Well, if you have to vote for it, you have to own that. All right, we've beaten that horse completely into the ground. Indeed. Um, How about, real quick, uh, just noting something interesting happening in the world of sanctions. Mm. So a third topic for us here, the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act. This is a 2000. 2016 law uh, inspired by and indeed named for Sergei Magnitsky, uh, who died in a Moscow jail back in 2009. The, many listeners will know this story. It's an incredible story. You got to read up on it. Um, he was investigating and exposing this massive uh, corruption scheme involving tax fraud. Um, and the the claim by his supporters is basically he was effectively murdered by the state. He was denied medical care while in prison, denied, dies in jail. Um, it's been a huge point of sensitivity. The way you want to think about the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act is as an extension of the our favorite IEPA, IEPA, <laughs> the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. As we've talked about many times on the program, one of the central powers of the executive branch under IEPA is the ability to sanction, to block assets, to uh, to freeze assets, to crimp, to effectively criminalize uh, doing business with blocked entities or individuals. Uh, and the way the way IEPA works is the president must declare a national emergency as to X. And then this triggers the ability, the pre-delegated sanctioning ability to list or have the Treasury Department list particular entities or individuals who are involved in problem X that is the source of the national emergency. So, for example, terrorism disrupting the Middle East peace process or WMD proliferation or terrorism. There are a whole host of national emergencies. Fun little parlor game. Go uh, try to find all the current national emergencies. Um the, the Global Magnitsky Act uh, looked at this situation and recognized that the the sanction tool, um, you might want to apply this, of course, in contexts involving human rights violations or massive governmental corruption, but you may or may not be comfortable issuing a, declaring there to be a national emergency affecting U.S. 
national security, et cetera, on that basis. And so the Magnitsky Act creates a mechanism to not have to declare the national emergency, thus triggering IEPA, but still under the Magnitsky Act have IEPA-type powers, including bans on uh, travel into the United States. That's the whole point of it all. Now, it's been in place since 2016. The Russians were super unhappy (laughs) about this. This connects up with our our endlessly fascinating Trump stories in that the Russians responded in part by cracking down on the ability to adopt uh, children, uh, Russian children, bring them to the United States, a really uh, particularly cruel type of response, if you ask me. Um, and this, so this this question of maybe alleviating that aspect of the Russian response, Steve, I believe was uh, at the root of some of the conversations between this 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 Russian lawyer who represents the Russian government or some shady deal like that, who was talking with Donald Trump Jr. And that led to some of the early discussions, which then became the basis for denying certain meetings took place. And it all sort of unspooled from there. Steve, is that about right? I think so. Yeah, it's incredible how these stories interconnect. In any event. But, but, uh, but, 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 but if we can take the Trump out of this for a second. I mean, the Magnitsky Act, I think, is a remarkably thoughtful response, right, to a really – really serious human rights problem. Yeah, so you got you've you've got this tool sitting there. So that's at the end of the Obama administration, Trump comes into office. Now, it hasn't been used. They're uh, I'm shocked. It, well, and so that's what makes this story kind of interesting because uh, last week, I guess on the 22nd, an executive or Thursday last week, an executive order from the Trump administration and then immediate action also by the Treasury Department uh, expanding upon it, acting under the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Act and IEPA. So doing them in combination, there is, there is, and this is kind of funny because the whole point of Magnitsky was you needed this non-IEPA mechanism, but Trump himself declared a national emergency. Let me get the, the language here. I, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States of America, find the prevalence and severity of human rights rights abuse and corruption that have their source in whole or in substantial part outside the United States, uh, such as those committed or directed by the persons listed in the annex to this order. They've reached such scope and gravity, they threaten the stability of international political and economic systems. I hereby declare a national emergency to deal with that threat. Donald Trump, human rights champion. Uh, he invokes IEPA powers. He invokes Magnitsky powers. And it's the usual combination of naming people, blocking their assets, blocking their travel, all the rest, including uh, you can't do business with these people. Trump's annex in his executive order names people from, I think, 12 or so different countries. Uh, and then the Treasury Department piled on with some additional ones. You've, you've got a quite a rogues gallery here. Quite. You've got you've got people involved in the tax fraud that Sergei Magnitsky himself had been originally trying to expose. You've got the 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 uh, the dictator of Chechnya. Yeah. You've got a, a Myanmar general involved in abusing the Rohingya. We've got a, a Beijing cop <laughs> who uh, who presided over a, a police station where a human rights activist like Sergei Magnitsky died in custody through denial of medical treatment. So so where's this coming from? Uh, it's interesting. So that's the thing I wanted to ask you about too. Like, do you think this is a reflection of the fact that the executive is a, is a they, not an it? Yes. And it's not just Donald Trump. It's no. this whole bureaucracy. It's it's whole. Uh, it's a whole array of bureaucracies. One of which is the Office of Foreign Assets Control and, and its partners and the State Department, who are uh, who are looking out for sort of what I would describe as the traditional American interest and perspectives on these things, and have produced this and. 
whatever else one wants to say about it, Donald Trump did in fact put his name to this, did sign it. Clearly, had it was briefed to him and was willing to go along with this. And it's interesting because it does run counter to some of the narratives about you know Trump undermining our traditional policy positions across an array of issues. Now, is it possible he didn't pay any attention and this was sort of <laughs> put on his desk? Maybe. Um, I mean, you know, it's an executive order. It's it's not the sort of thing you just sign and look the other way on. So. Um, does it mean, therefore, that we've returned to traditional politics and international relations? Of course not. Um, but I'm nonetheless quite pleased to see that this occurred. Yeah, listen, I mean, I, I, I don't see how this is a negative development as any, in, in any other context than compared to everything else that could be happening, right? Like, you know, this strikes me as a positive step forward regardless of how it got there or why. That's right. That's right. So some things continue to function. Good job, Trump administration. Maybe it's a sign that 2018 will be a more functional year. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking the under on that taking one. Taking the under on that one? Well, tell me more about 2018. What else is it is in the cards in our fourth and final substantive segment here? So just really briefly, I mean, I, you know, obviously it's hard to predict what's going to happen, but it seems to me that there are going to be four big themes right, uh, to look out for in 2018. Um, so big theme number one is it's an election year. Um, and it's a really odd election year, right? Because the party that controls both houses of Congress, in theory, has a pretty good map to retain both houses of Congress, but has, how do we say, um, top of the ticket problems? Well, there's always, a, isn't there always a top of the ticket problem in, in off the, your midterms? Off your midterms. Yeah. So I think that the, in general, that's a problem. And it, when you have. But the, the top map of the is usually not this good, right, for the party in power. I mean, right. So, for example, in 2010, the Democrats had a much less um, positive map even going in, even before they got their, their rear ends handed to them. The map was not as favorable to them as the map is to Republicans this cycle. It, it seems like a safe bet that what we're going to see. Do you, do you think the house is going to flip? Yes. Okay. So if the so, house, I mean, so right. a lot could happen between now and November. But I think right. you know, if the election, if barring some dramatic change that somehow restores, um, uh, how do I say, popular appeal to the top of the of the Republican ticket, yes, I think the house flips. Okay. Can you think of anything that would be a dramatic event that might have that kind of rally around the executive branch effect? Is this, you know, for example, if we have a war in, that's, in Korea, is that's that going to upset the apple so that, part? So that's my paranoia, right? War, um, some kind of attack on the U.S. by, you know, let's say a non-state actor, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, you know, a lot can happen between now and November. My point is just that if, if all, you know, things being what they are, I mean, if you look at the sort of polling and the, the sort of how much space has closed in those, I think, what, six special elections we've had this year. You know, the odds are, at least at the moment, good that the House flips. Of course, then the million-dollar question is what about the Senate? Yeah, I, I, I bet you'll get one, not the other. And, and from our perspective, what does it mean for us? It means that we're going to have a lot more our separation. Being, our, of, our being national security law people, not 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 your politics versus mine. There is no our perspective in that. <laughs> well, you know, these days, who knows, right? But uh, um I think what we're going to see is a lot more separation yes. of powers issues. We're going to have a yes. lot more occasion come, uh, well, January after 2019. Yeah, to talk about investigative powers of Congress. Subpoenas, uh, executive if, privilege. If the House flips, uh, is there any doubt that they'll at some point over the next six to eight months pursue articles of impeachment? I hope so. I mean, like, I hope there's doubt, right? Because, you know, if the House flips and the Senate doesn't, I mean, right. well, it's going to be this fruitless exercise right. that's, that's only going to empower it, the president. Yeah, yeah, the friction will be intense. Yeah, no, I, I would much I think the real question is, before we get to that point, right, how aggressive are House – I mean, Elijah Cummings is chair of the House Oversight Committee, right, you know, issuing subpoenas to the executive branch. So we're going to have a lot of privilege debates. We're going to have a lot of enforcement debates about the powers of Congress. But maybe those subpoenas – 
produce information, right, that makes this more attractive or less attractive. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so so obviously I think politics, shockingly, is going to be a huge part yeah. of the story in 2018. I'll predict for you that Korea is not going to boil over. That we're going to continue with this. We're going to get accustomed to this very loud, constant saber rattling, <sighs> and, and it will not turn into World War III. Whatever happened to the boy who cried wolf? Hmm, I don't that, know. That didn't end well for the boy. You know, but there... Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Yeah, like it ended well for the wolf. Um, so, so uh, on the court front, right? I mean, so I think we are going to see a raft of interesting national security law decisions. So, from the starting from the top down, from the Supreme Court, we're going to get the cell site location information decision in right. Carpenter, which I think we're both predicting June. Um, June, but you know, 2018, um, the Microsoft case about the Stored Communications Act. Yep. Right. Potentially travel ban 3.0, which, of course, has some implications for, you know, our universe. Which I, I think is going to get increasingly kind of in the weeds yep. with fewer and fewer broader implications. Yeah, although the headlines will still be deference. Trump wins or Trump loses. Oh, right, right. But I think it'll end up being kind of more, yep. more of its own little thing. Um, I think we're going to see more movement in some of the cases against President Trump in his other capacity. Right. So the Judge Daniels, for example, uh, District Court in New York threw out the first emolument suit against him on stand. Well, right. mostly standing grounds. Um, we're going to see more of those in 2018. I think we'll see movement on Doe versus Mattis. We might finally see some renewed movement in the military commissions. Um, I'm going to predict a couple of new nominees to the CMCR. Oh, right? uh, yeah, that's a good prediction. Yeah, we'll, we'll get the ruling at some point in Dalmazi. Dalmazi. Uh, that, that old chestnut. Well, so next time we gather, we should, we should preview. More. All right. Um, um, I, we'll pre- we'll preview Dalmazi and we'll review The Last Jedi. That'll so, be quite an episode. Yeah. So 702 will, you know, will get renewed in some fashion. Yep. And I think you know that this sort of the Carpenter, Microsoft, and 702 issues, which which are all about this this ongoing effort to, to get a new equilibrium going with privacy and security. That that's going to be a multi year affair. Yep. Who knows if that'll ever even reach an equilibrium? Yep. Nothing dramatic's I think going to happen in the surveillance space. Um, what about detention? I think that it, at some point fairly soon, as we said earlier, John Doe is going to go away. And then the question becomes, hey, is, so is Trump ever going to actually bring someone new to Guantanamo? And if the opportunities right. are fewer and fewer and far right. between because the Islamic State has lost all its territory. And if he doesn't, right, are we going to see any movement on the legacy cases? So, you know, is, are, we're going to, it looks, but for all accounts and purposes, we're going to start 2018 with the same number of detainees at Guantanamo that, you know, President Trump inherited yeah. on day one. And I'll predict for you that at the end of 2018, it'll be the same number. There won't be any new ones. There, no one's leaving. No one's coming in. Someone might die. That may happen, but there's not going to be any addition by it, the by the so, administration. So, so or big, big Bobby call forty one. Um, I think that uh, what will change is you're going to get some new geography of yeah. drone strikes. That's right. uh, Niger in particular. As we've seen from some of the sort of subtle but important shifts in targeting policy yeah. and guidance. So I think I think Africa will, will be in yeah. general, the Sahel region, you're going to see a fair amount of new drone activity. Somalia has already heated up plenty. That's just going to continue. And separate from the travel ban, I think we're going to see a lot more discussion of national security and immigration. Because it, it seems the president seems to have found um, in immigration a policy area where he can really sort of be the hawk he wants to be. No, that's right. I, I think um, you're certainly going to – I don't know. I'm not sure this is our topic, but um, they are going to make a move on trying to alter the grounds, yep. um, shift to, towards what some describe as like a merits-based yep. or qualification-based yep. rather than a family-based. Yep. Um, We're seeing that already, right? Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. doesn't have immediate national security implications, but obviously there's always at least a background peripheral relationship between national security and immigration. True that. Um, Speaking of things where the national security implications are in the background at best, should we – should we move on to our movie segment? Yeah, all I can say is 2018. <laughs> so, so my favorite holiday card from um, 
this, this, you know, I'm, I'm the tra one of our uh, unnamed colleagues, right, um, and, and, and family sent a holiday card um, where it said, um, here's to 2018, Colin. It can't be any worse, right? Question right? mark. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it, yeah, it's scary because you immediately start thinking like, yeah, it could be a lot worse because we could really have yeah. war with North Korea. Yeah, yeah. That's oh, no, no I mean, even matter. Lots of, but lots of things could but be I'm worse. predicting we will not cross that line. I sure hope so, because otherwise we may not get to episode 100. That's right, and we need to, that's, that's what it's really all about. Yeah, come on now. <laughs> all right, so really quickly, um, what is, Bobby, the canon of national security law movies? Right, so we got to define our category here. What here do we, we go mean again. by a movie uh, that's a national security law movie. I think it's any movie where you could use it as a as a reasonable teaching tool in a national security law class because it's really bringing to life some issue, right? Okay. Um, it doesn't have to the whole movie. I mean, or no, no, more, it, more than one moment. A meaningful scene. You got to have a meaningful scene. If the whole movie's about it, you're going to be limited to you know. A General Devereaux, you are under arrest. You're charged with violating the Logan Act. <laughs> oh God, that movie's awful. Uh, is it though? Is it? Um, I think uh, we have a few we will definitely agree on. Uh, one, where the screenplay was written by uh, our friend and local Austin uh, celeb, uh, Larry Wright, author of The Looming Tower. But more importantly, for this purpose, uh, the, the uh, screenplay author of The Siege, mm. Denzel Washington, Bruce Willis. It's this Annette great... Benning, Annette Benning, Tony it's a Shalhoub. All-star cast. It's quite a cast. Terrorism mounting in New York and eventually... Well, well we don't want to give away too much. Oh, come on, the movie's from 1998. Spoiler I think there's a 20-year moving wall. But I think precisely because it's a little bit dated, a lot of people won't have seen it. Yeah, although it's, it's quite prescient, right? I mean, so the premise of the movie is that there's an escalating series of terrorist attacks in Brooklyn, um, right? And that, you know, what what the movie is meant to show is how the government's response evolves, right? It's not from, all Brooklyn, right? Isn't there, it, I don't want to yeah, give way too much here, but isn't there a Times Square? The, not Times Square. The, I know, yeah, yeah. The big, big oh, Broadway, thing, there's a Broadway. The big, big thing is there, there, so there end up being two attacks in Manhattan, yeah, right? Okay. So Broadway's one, but actually the big attack, right, is what's supposed to be the FBI headquarters. Right, um, right, right. Although it's really actually one Liberty Plaza, the, the, the building that clearly Gottlieb was in, where oh, I summered. Interesting. So that was awkward. That's no accident. Um, <laughs> but in this case, here's a film that actually has some national security law right on the surface, right? Well, because, I mean, the, the, the sort of the central premise of the movie is what is the difference, you know, where is the line between a criminal and a military response, right, to an escalating series of terrorist incidents? Um, and what, if anything, does the law have to say about where that when we cross that line? There's actually, I mean, the movie is, is overdone. And it's more than a little racist, um, right? Well, I mean, isn't no? I mean, that that's not quite fair. Isn't the whole point to try because they they crack down on on All Muslims, Muslims in right? Brooklyn. But you, you say like the movie's racist. The whole point is to portray a race based response. That's like that's the central point. I, of I the understand, movie. but but there are there are aspects of the movie. So every time that you see, for example, someone washing themselves, right, a Muslim man, you know, going through was it ablution, right? Um, they're about to commit an attack, even though that's what everybody does every day, like. There, there are things well, about the because movie. they're showing the character who's the uh, terrorist who's I, about to commit an attack doing that. I, I, so I, I, we disagree about this. Fair enough. Okay, but whatever the movie. I mean, you're right. The movie does show right the dangers of a. Yeah, know, it's trying to show this in a sympathetic, not as sympathetic to the policy light, but to make you see like, look, wouldn't this be bad if we did right, this? Right. Although I don't know. At the end of the movie, are, are you really on Denzel's side? Aren't you? 
Um, are you on Bruce Willis's side instead? Doesn't that intrigue you, listener, if you've never seen this, that there's a Denzel side and a Bruce Willis well, side? Well, listen, there's a Mexican standoff, right? I mean, there's a Mexican standoff between Denzel and a whole bunch of FBI agents and Bruce Willis and a whole bunch it's of a great you know, soldiers. Well, let's just say this. There's an explicit discussion of Ex parte Milligan in this movie. Ex- uh, not just Ex parte Milligan, the Logan Act. It's right? One of the things that Denzel you know, says, he has, says the arrest warrant for Bruce Willis is for is a violation of the Logan Act. No, I didn't remember that. Yes. I thought you were joking earlier. No, General Devereaux, you're under arrest. Where, how does the Logan Act fit into there? Well, because he was you know, not following orders. He was conducting. I don't, it, yeah, that doesn't really work. It's a stretch. Yeah. He also clearly had. A, he clearly was not acting without authority of the United States, but be that as it may. The, the Milligan discussion is much more apt. Um, indeed. All right. Uh, how about this? I think that one of my all-time favorites, uh, Red Dawn, uh-huh. is a fabulous teaching tool for the endless array of LOAC questions uh, you can you can bring out. Um, you, you've even got a scene where no less than Patrick Swayze himself uh, denies having heard of the Geneva Conventions. I think he's being sarcastic when he says it, but he does have a prisoner in his sights when he does it. Um, it's full of insurgents setting off IEDs. Only the insurgents are the heroes, and they're the American <laughs> right, we're teenagers. the insurgents. Yeah, yeah, that's part of what's fun. It's a little bit like uh, Battlestar Galactica. In that a respect. little. Well, of course, it came first, so it was more original. I was going to say. Um, well, it came it came before the remake. The one that we're talking about. Yes, yes. Right, right. The good yes. Battlestar Galactica. Yes. Well, I, they're both good in their own ways. One is good. One is just classic. <laughs> Glenn Larson. Um, all right, so we have two. All right, what else have we got? Hey, I mean, there are all these bad movies, right? Like there are the there's like the Forrest Whitaker movie where he where he disrupts a coup, right? Mm. Like there, you know, um, I'm trying to remember what that one's called. Um, the Enemy Within, I think maybe. What about okay? So you've got some. There's some you know hacking classics that are kind of cybersecurity classics. You've got war games. Yep. There's not really oh, but, war but games. law doesn't really lurk on the surface except in so far as that right. uh, you know there's no role for Congress apparently in, in any of the the Whopper based um, uh, you know the po- right scenarios. the post right this movie that just came out right the Steven Spielberg oh, yeah. I, Tom okay. Hanks so is that movie. out yet I'm looking forward to it. it's a, out a Pentagon Papers movie yeah so apparent I mean so so just to one sort of slight quibble right I haven't seen the movie yet so I don't know how how fair a quibble this is don't let that stop you. Fair enough. Um, so let's just be clear, right? The Washington Post was really the sort of um, uh, background player to most of the Pentagon Papers controversy, right? The real heavy lifting, the real serious fights with the government, that was all the New York Times, right? The Post comes in at the end when the Times is actually enjoined from publishing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, how did they pull this off? So apparently, I haven't, I haven't seen the movie yet. Apparently is the it because is, it's Meryl Streep and it, Catherine Graham? It's more, right, that, that Catherine Graham is really the focus of the movie. And yeah. it's like, and there's actually a very sort of gendered, you know, um, Catherine Graham trying to navigate through an all-boy world, <laughs> right? Right. So it's more the story of the struggle. She's amazing. Yeah, and quite. Uh, in the story, her, who did the biography of her that was so good? Oh, gosh. You know what I'm talking about? There was, it, was a, it was a big deal a while back. I, I just, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of biographies, before we go, um, how are you doing on your uh, Grant biography, the Chernow? So I'm almost done. Because um, we need to do a joint review. You doing the Chernow biography. I'm going to do the Bill Brands biography. There you go. Um, I, I think I think you might win. Um, <laughs> so the Chernow biography, it's certainly thorough. Um, yeah. Without spoiling anything, Grant dies at the end. Um, mm, but will he be president? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will say, I, I, the Grant, the Chernow biography reads to me very much like Chernow is all in on Grant, right? And Grant really can do no wrong. And, 
you know, that's why I stopped reading it and switched to Bill's. And and like, Bill Brands is a great author, right. but it's just a more even-handed treatment. Right. I mean, Cherno Cherno is not biography. Cherno is not really writing a biography of Grant. Cherno is writing a response to the Grant critics um, in the form of a biography, and that's fine. I mean, I I am sympathetic to most of Cherno's sympathy to Grant. Right. I think Grant generally gets a bum rap. I think he was a pretty decent person and a pretty good president. Um, but the book is so hagiographic. Oh, it's unbelievable. Um, I just couldn't. I just couldn't get past about the first third. Yeah. I mean, one, one too many descriptions of his unbelievable horsemanship <laughs> and unrelenting bravery. Or, and or once again, right? You know, an episode that could, an episode that that painted Grant in a bad light was misunderstood because p- people failed to appreciate that it was through his own blah blah blah. Right. Right. It's right. like, come on now. Um, right, well, I will we may say, not have to review them at the rate we're going. Although learned, there are a lot of cool legal issues to actually pull out of these There stories. are so many cool tidbits in the book, right? Yeah. Including one one that's relevant to Dalmazi. Oh, is right? that right? There's a brief oh, throwaway mention sense? to the statute when it was enacted and one of the issues that prompted it that was nowhere in the legislative okay, history. Okay, I want you to work that into your oral <laughs> argument in the Supreme As Court. As Ron Cherno said, Justice Alito. <laughs> yeah, not, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, all, right. all right. Last but not least, Texas Bowl. Prediction. Go. Okay. Uh, in a... In a game that will be dominated by a number of players that really haven't <laughs> seen the field for UT because like, also those our practice squad. Our practice squad. It, for those who don't follow our football team, we got more than a few guys going pro and not playing. We have more than a few injuries, and we have more than a few suspensions, uh, and we have some transfers. The whole nine yards. Um, some player is going to be the hero of this game, winning it at the end, either through a, a defensive player or an offensive player. I don't know, but some guy you never heard of. Score prediction. Score prediction. Oh, that's going to be 29-24. Texas. Texas. All right, here's my prediction. In a huge nail-biter, right down in the finish, Mizzou wins 41-14. to <laughs> um, But keep in oh, mind, everybody. Man, I really hope you're wrong. I mean, just my predictive powers are not to be disputed. After all, I had Tampa Bay and Oakland in the Super Bowl. Very fine. Fine decision. All right, on that note, let's let everybody go. and let I'm going back to potty here. training. Not me, my daughter. <laughs> don't know what to say about that. Um, other than, 2017 other than, has been real. Yeah, we'll see you guys next year. Until then, stay safe out there. Adios.